Amen. Amen. Everybody's good? Thank you for coming this morning. Uh, I wanted to give a message. I'm going to be done here quickly this morning. Yeah, amen. I am, seriously, because I have to. My family's told me I had to. They said, Dad, don't you be talking long. So, but... I wanted to make a, first of all, I want to say a couple of things. I don't usually, I, for years I did not like doing messages on Easter or Christmas or Thanksgiving because I was never good at special messages. That just wasn't my thing for some reason. But, man, and you know, I was planning on, I'm going to get somebody else to preach on Easter. I'm not doing it because I didn't really want to. But I tell you, man, for the last month, I have just so enjoyed thinking about today and thinking about how awesome a day this is for us, that this is our day. If if I feel this is the truth, if you can't be happy today, man, you need to ask the Lord to help you. (laughs) Because this is a happy day for us. This this is why we're here, is because because this is is resurrection. This is victory. Yeah, this is what... This is what Christianity is all about. It's about now. It's about what Christ has done, what Christ has accomplished. And we have a living God. And I think we really need to celebrate what He's done. So so not only do we celebrate in church, I want to encourage everybody to, to have a good, a wonderful day. Celebrate with your family and, you know, or friends. Or just don't just go home and... You know, watch television. Do something. Find somebody. If you don't have any friends, find one right quick here. Go out there to Sloan Park and make some friends, you know. But just let this be a day of, of joy and happiness. This is not a day of mourning. This is a day of happiness. And I, I really wanted to say that. And I just really want to thank the Lord for, for His goodness to us. And thank God, Lord, that He saved us. And, you know, He chose each one of you. You've, and you've responded to Him. And just in case you haven't, today's a good day to respond to Him. Today's a good day to say yes to Christ and say, I want you. You know, I just think about, I wanted to say this. I was saying about this during worship, how, you know, we were talking about how the Lord washed us and cleansed us, that I was a person, I was, I was going down, I was dying, I was full of filth, I was full of sin, I was, I was a despicable person. And Christ saved me. He chose me. He visited me over a simple prayer one night. He visited me with His presence and His fire. I got fire on me before I even became a Christian. <laughs> well, at the time, it scared me, you know. But I tell you what it did. It brought me into the kingdom. And, and He saved my life. And He changed my life. And I got so much to be thankful for. And you have so much to be thankful for. If you are Christ. If, he, if you belong to Him and He belongs to you, you have so much to be thankful for. And the Lord really wants us to shift our thoughts from whatever it is, whatever the discouragements, the defeats, the tragedies, all of that. He wants us to shift from that to victory because we are a victorious people if there is a victorious people. Amen? Amen. So I'll give you this real fast message. And, you know, this is... Uh, the name, I even have a name of this message. Usually I have to make up one later. You know, like, oh, what am I going to call that? Because I know me, I don't always say what I'm going what I write down. But the paradox of the cross, that's what the name of this is, the paradox of the cross. 
And let me define a paradox just in case you don't know what it is. I suspect you do. Definition-wise, a paradox is a situation, person, or thing that combines contradictory features or qualities. A situation, person, or thing that combines contradictory features or qualities. In other words, the cross, there's contradiction in the cross. There's qualities that are contradiction contradiction to each other in the cross. I'm going to read Isaiah 53, verse 7. This is a beautiful scripture. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And that's Christ, and that's a position of humility and weakness. That's, that's the picture that that gives us. And, when, and many times we tend to think, when we think about the cross, we tend to think of the weakness of it, of the humiliation of it. Jesus even said there was a shame associated with the, with the cross. Paul said that Christ was crucified in weakness. And this is really something that the church has to always keep in their hearts, that there is a, there is a humiliation and a weakness that's going to always be a stigma associated with the cross of Christ. Is that not the truth? So uh, let me read Revelations 5, 5 through 6. This will give you the other side of the cross, the, the, where it becomes a paradox to us. You know, this is when they were looking at the seals at the, at the end of the age, and they were looking for someone to open the seals, and no one in heaven could open the seals, and John began to weep. And one of the elders said to him in verse 5, Do not weep. See, the line of the tribe, see, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scrolls and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as it is as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And it goes on and describes what the lamb looked like. So here you have the paradox. On the one hand, you have triumph. You have victory. And, and the elder said, look. Look at, the lamb, look at the lion. Look at the lion of the tribe of Judah. Look at this triumphal person. And when he looked, he didn't see the lion he saw the lamb. He saw the, the, the slain, a lamb that was slain. Do you see that? That's what heaven wanted him to see. So at the center of heaven, there's always going to be a lamb of God, a lamb that was slain at the center of heaven. But there's also going to be a triumphal king, a lord. Are you following that? Now I'm going to read Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And this is Paul speaking. It says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. That's good news. Having forgiven you all trespasses. Amen. Having forgiven you all trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. That's dogma which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Isn't that beautiful? Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Is that not... Now that is awesome. Now what I want to do 
is I want to read something from a book that was published in 1938. So most of you are probably not reading that book. It's probably not even in circulation anymore. The title of the book is The Healing Cross, Interpretation of Life. The Healing Cross is by name a man named Herbert H. Farmer. Herbert was a British preacher and became quite a man. Quite a, a man. He came to the U.S. He was very popular. And I'm going to read just a few little things that he said about this verse. Uh, he says, These verses imply that Christ was active resistance on the offense, not receiving blows, but giving them. We think of him as being nailed to the cross by cunning injustice and brutal force. No, says the apostle, in effect, that is not so. Or rather, it is only the outward appearance of things. Whew, that's good. Get down to the underlying reality and behold, it is Jesus who is doing the nailing all the time. Isn't that powerful? Jesus is the one doing the nailing. The devil's not nailing him. People are not nailing. Christ himself is doing the nailing. The New Testament picture of vigorous activity and victory and the passion of Christ was apparently only gradually lost from the thought of the church. Early pictorial representations of the cross, we are told, all endeavored to convey the impression of kingly triumph. Y'all following that? The figure was usually crowned in anything which might suggest a drooping and pathetic passivity was absent. You got that? It was in the Middle Ages that the crucifix, as we know it, giving unconsciously a wrong trend to our thoughts became common. The crucifix, which shows a limp, pain-drenched, pathetic figure. So what this man was saying is before the Middle Ages, most of the artwork did not depict Christ in a weak state. It depicted Christ in a victorious state of power. And there was a shift that happened in the Middle Ages, and artwork and pictures and things began to focus more on the weakness of Christ. And yeah, it really is. And so what this man was trying to do is shift us our thoughts, our thinking away from a Christ that's hanging, as he said, pathetic, weak, drooping on the cross to see Christ as more of a victor, as a triumphal Christ. So Jesus even said in John 10, 18, I'm not laying my life, nobody can take my life from me. I have willingly laid my life down and I will pick it up again when I want to. I have the power and authority to do this. So that was sort of his thinking. Now let me read uh, um, 2 Corinthians 13.4. I think in my heart, in my mind, is what I, I want us to get. There's always going to be a place for us to consider and never neglect the weakness and the shame of the cross. I think that's essential for Christians. Paul himself said in... in in Philippians 4, that he went through times of being weak. This is Paul the Apostle, the man who raised dead, you know, did some stuff that we would 
not allow in the church today. You know, we would say, well, how can a man talk to an angel? That would be heresy, yet he talked to angels. He was a mighty apostle. He said there's times of abasement or times of weakness, but there's also times of prosperity or victory. And I've learned in both states to be content. I've learned to not lose Christ to not let my focus drift from this person regardless of the state that I'm in. Regardless of whether I am living on top or it appears that I'm living on bottom. I live a victorious life all the time, regardless. I think that's a powerful thing in today's today for us to not dwell too much on weakness in defeat, but the day's a day for you and I to think of victory because that's what we're celebrating. We're not celebrating the weakness of Christ. We're celebrating the victory of Christ. And when we celebrate this victory, we can begin, ourselves begin to walk in that victory. We know too well how to walk in the weakness. We know too well how to walk through tragedy. Everybody in this room, you've walked through things. You've, you've suffered things. You've lost things. You, some have lost wealth. Some have lost health. Some have lost loved ones. Some have lost dreams. You know, we know that. And we're well able to preach on that and talk about that. We're well able. We're too good at it. We're not good at talking about the victory that much. I think God is calling for, for a shift I think He's calling for us for a change, a transition. That's, that's what I feel God is saying to me personally. It's time to shift from, from the defeat, from the loss of yesterday. Because Christ did not live in that place. He did not stay. Christ is not on the cross. Christ is risen. He is at the throne of heaven. He's up there. And we're with Him in that place of victory. And we have to begin to think that way. Do we deny Lost? Do we deny tragedy? Certainly not. God has allowed all of us to walk through that and be touched by it. And one of the reasons, if we can't, you know, as many whys, one of the reasons is because of the contaminated world that we live in and all the ones who don't know what we know, who don't have a revelation of victory, but they have a revelation of pain and sorrow. There needs somebody to be able to go to them that can relate to them in their pain and sorrow like Christ could relate to us in our pain and sorrow and take, us, take them by the hand as he's taken us by the hand this morning and saying, I'm leading you away from that place you've been in. I'm leading you out of the valley of the shadow of the death. I'm living, leading you into a place of fullness. I have set a table for you is what David says. I've set a table for you in the presence of the enemy. The enemy is not gone. He's sitting there, but he realizes he's watching. He watched you walk through something. He watched you come through something. And so Christ is saying, sit down at my table. And Christ is looking at the enemy saying, you're not touching them. It's time for victory. I'll pour my oil over. I'll fill you to overflowing. And that's really the thinking that he wants to shift us into. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 4. He said, for though he was crucified in weakness, yes, we see weakness. Yet, thank God he didn't stop there. Yet he lives by the power of God. Then he says something amazing. He says, for we also are weak in him. Now listen, this is just a side note. 
we tell people this all the time. They come, I got these problems. I'm just too weak. No, you're not. You're not too weak. You're too strong. That's your problem. You're still too strong. You need to become weak in Him. You will never be able to overcome your problems. You will never overcome those sins and those temptations. Become weak in Him. God is looking for, your, for you to come weak in Him. That means you come to surrender in Him. Not strong. God's not trying to make me strong. He's trying to make me weak in Him because this is what it says. It didn't stop there. But we shall live with Him by the power of God towards you. And so when we embrace being weak in Him, the power of God can be released into our life. And we can begin to live by a power that we don't have in our human selves. The power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the age to come that's available to every person in this room this morning. That's the true message of the cross right there. Isn't that wonderful? Well, I got just enough time. I told you I was going to finish. I wanted to read. These are my two all-time favorite verses on Easter. They're actually out of the Old Testament. And they explain what Paul meant back there in Colossians when he said that Christ has disarmed the enemy, the principalizer, and he made a public spectacle of them. A public spectacle. These verses explain the complete work, the complete victory that Christ had at the cross, what he did to the devil. Now, I am going to pick on the devil this morning. Last week I told you you guys about how the devil operates in people's life. Well, it's payback time. Because there's some truth here we need to get about the devil and about how defeated the devil is. Because the devil... I'm here to declare is defeated. I don't care what anybody says. He's beat. He is beaten. He is beaten. He is beaten. Now, as I said to you last week, he still has power. He still has a domain that he operates in because he has not yet been put under the feet of Christ. It says that in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 25. Read it. Okay? And we, the church, are the ones that are going to be the feet of Christ. God is going to use Ephesians 3.10. says the powers and principalities in the heavenly places, the wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God will be released against all that. God's going to do it. That it there's going to be a generation. Marlon was prophesying over this generation. Maybe there'll be the generation we'll really start seeing a manifestation of Romans 16.20. God of peace will crush Satan under your feet, the feet of Jesus Christ. We're his feet. That that's what they're talking about there. They're talking about bringing the, all things under subjection to Christ. And then Christ will give it to the Father. But anyway, I want to read. Isn't that wonderful? Habakkuk had a vision of the Lord and the Lord was upset. Okay? And this is, I'm going to read it to you. Verse 2. It's a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet. This is in the Old Testament. Fortunately for you, you don't have to look it up because you probably couldn't find it. <laughs> Most people can't. It's sort of hidden in there. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Isn't that beautiful? God came from Timan, Timan, Timon. The Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and His praise filled the earth. Isn't that beautiful? 
His splendor was like the sunrise, raised, flashed from his hands. Y'all got that? His ray, that's lightning, flashed from his hands. Where his power was hidden. Where his power was hidden in his hands. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. But he marches on forever. Isn't that wonderful? This man had a poetic thought on him, didn't he? I saw the tents of Kashan in distress, the, the, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow and called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows and at the lightning of your flashing spear. You know what that was? What time did darkness fall on the earth when Christ was on the cross? That's what that's talking about right there. It's talking about those hours where the sun stood still, the moon, everything stopped. This is giving us information here. In wrath, you strode through the earth, and in anger, you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed, and here it goes, you crushed the leader, the leader of the land of wickedness. Listen. You stripped him from head to foot. The God stripped the devil naked. I want you to think about it. I want you to get that in your mind this morning. At the cross, when Paul said he made an open spectacle, that's what he was talking about. In those days when the king was defeated, they would strip him naked and march him down in front of everybody. Naked as a jaybird. Yeah. A defeated foe, naked, uncovered. He didn't just take his weapons. He exposed him. The Lord exposed the devil that day at the cross. He exposed him. He whipped him. He beat him so bad that the devil couldn't even keep his clothes on. He beat him out of his clothes. With his own spear. You know what? He's talking about the devil. With his own spear, the devil's spear. What was his spear? It was the cross. It was the cross. He thought he had Christ. He thought he had beaten Christ. He thought he was killing, killing the Son of God. And the God said, with your own spear, with your own spear, you pierced his head, his head, Golgotha. Golgotha is a skull. If you ever seen a picture of it, it's a skull of a man. That's what it looks like, that mountain where Jesus was. That was the skull of the devil, where God took that spear like, devil, you think you're beating me? You think I'm going to drive this spear into your head? It's amazing, isn't it? With your own spear, you pierce his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though they are about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. The devil gloated at that moment. He was gloating and not realizing he was being destroyed. Genesis 3.15 was prophesying. It says that, speaking of the last days that the enemy would bruise the foot of Christ. 
when some people say, I don't know, I'm not no expert on this, but they say a person who's, who is crucified actually winds up with a bruised heel. I don't want to personally know it, but it's probably true. You shall bruise his heels, but he shall crush your head. And that's what Christ did. Certainly his heel was bruised, but he crushed the head of Satan. He crushed the leader. He crushed him. Christ beat the enemy. The enemy is defeated. We don't, he don't have victory. We have victory. Let me read Nahum 3.19. I'm doing good. I'm going to finish. This describes the injury that went to Satan. Nahum, big Nahum. That probably ain't the way you spell it, but it nevertheless, it's 3.19. Your injury has no healing. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? See, that's what the church needs to start doing. We need like, oh, we're going to clap over this fool. He, his wound is severe. He, there's no healing for him. There's no healing for the devil. His wound is severe. We need to clap over him. We need to get over when something bad starts happening in your life. You should start clapping. I'm clapping over a defeated devil. Because the devil has people convinced that he's something that he's not. Like I said last week, the only weapon that Satan has now, the new weapon, the quote, new weapon, is lies. And once we believe his lies, we're entrapped by him. And we get messed up. But today is not the day to worry about his, his, his lies. The day is the day to celebrate. Oh, that's the injury to Satan. It's severe. There's no cure. It's incurable. He's doomed. Then in Nahum 3, 5 through 6, this is what the Lord says. Behold, I'm against you, says the Lord of hosts. I'm against you. That's what he's saying to them. Well, I'm against you. Now, I, wouldn't that be a bad moment in life if you heard God say that to you? I'm sure Christians have been told that uh, at one time or another. If you grew up in my era, you probably heard that. that the Lord's mad at you. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's right. The Lord's not against us. I will, this is again the nakedness. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness. Isn't this, this is victory. I'm going to expose your height. And the world is going to see it. It's not just going to be two or three people that's going to see it. I'm going to expose you to everybody. And they're not going to find out you ain't such what you claimed you were under your clothes. You know what I mean? Just imagination. Okay, you're claiming you're something and the Lord's saying, nah, he ain't. Trust me. And I'm going to show everybody what you ain't. Well, anyways, I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth on you and make you vile and make you a spectacle. That, when we pray, Lord, deliver us from evil, we're saying, throw some more filth on him. Throw some more filth on him, Lord. Make him more of a spectacle. I believe the Lord wants to tell people in this room that it's time to make a shift. I said that. It's time to, to move from the focus on loss and defeat. 
the, the time of sorrow, the time of struggle, the time of brokenness. Not that we won't experience brokenness again. Not that we won't go through difficulties again. I'm not suggesting that. In fact, I'm suggesting because we live in a fallen world, it's impossible to avoid those things. But I am saying this, there's times and seasons. There's times and seasons. And it's a time for the church to rise up and begin to walk in this victory and begin to see things as they really are. And not let what happened yesterday, the pain of yesterday, the sorrow of yesterday, the loss of yesterday, not let that be the thing that holds you back anymore. Isaiah says, the Lord will be your rear guard. The Lord will be your rear guard. Are you all okay? And so this morning, um, this is a great word to give this morning. The testimonies of triumph coming from forth from this body will be greater than our tragedies. Let me read that one more time. The testimonies of triumph coming forth from this body will be greater than our tragedies. That, that came from somebody who had a terrible tragedy in their life. They're starting to see a testimony come forth. Put off our sackcloth. Yeah, put off our sackcloth. Um, one of the things I saw in worship was, Lord, how, how could we let somebody so beautiful and awesome as you, how could we, how could we let, how could we let you get away from us? How could this happen, Lord? How God wants us, you know, I've always known that the Lord holds me when I can't hold Him. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, there's just been times in my life I couldn't hold on to the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm telling you, I've been there where I said, Lord, if you don't hold me, I can't, because I, I can't hold on to you anymore. I've done everything I can to hold on. I can't hold it. And the Lord's always said, don't worry, I'll hold on to you. I'll never let go of you. I will never let go. He never loses strength. But this morning I felt this thing. I felt like, Lord, you know what I want to do? I want to take, and I'm not a hold a person's face in my hands kind of person. You know, I'll never do that to baby. I might do it to babies. <laughs> but I wanted to take the face of the Lord. I want to put my hands on His face this morning. And I wanted to look into his eyes and stare into his face and hold that face in my hands because that is the most lovely face there is. And I wanted to look in those eyes. I wanted to look in those eyes and look deep into those eyes because all all I knew is he's the most precious man ever. There's nothing more precious than Christ. There's nothing more precious than Christ. And God wants to put that thing in us where we want to just hold Him and touch Him. John said it, First John 4, or 1, Behold, we've touched Him. we felt Him. we heard Him. I believe it's possible in the spirit realm to touch this person, to touch Him. I believe He's looking for people. I believe he's looking for believers that have it in their heart. Like, Lord, I want to I wanna go beyond. I want to go beyond all this. I want to go beyond this. I want to put my hands on you. I want to touch you. 
I want to hold you. I want to feel you. I want to hear you. And I believe the Lord, that's what the Lord wants for us. And I believe He wants us to be able to look into His face and look into His eyes and look deep into His eyes. Because when you start looking into His eyes, you know what you're going to see? You're going to look down into your own soul. And you're going to see what's inside your soul. That's Because His eyes are like mirrors. When we look into them, we see ourselves. And we're going to see the things in us that hurt us. We're going to see the things in us that have wounded us. And He's going to say, yeah, that needs to be taken care of. Let me take care of it. Let me touch that. Let me put my hand in there. And you'll begin to get a deliverance in your life. Amen? Amen. So, can we have a victory song before we leave today? Somebody, you know, like Jacob, somebody. You know, Jacob, somebody. You're somebody, Jacob. Listen, I love our worship team. Let's give them a big hand. I love them. This is so good. You know, Brian's trying to grow a beard, and he's been talking to me about how do you grow a beard. <laughs> Actually, he's been talking to Dean about help, trying to help Dean grow one. I'm serious, y'all. Listen to me. Please, no matter what's going on in your life today, set it aside. Set it aside. And let this be a day of celebration for you to celebrate our victory and declare our victory. It can be a turning point for you. Amen. Woo! So here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask you know you to stand for a moment and let's end on worship. We got a ministry team. If anybody wants to, for for prayer for your life, for prayer for strength, eyes to see this beautiful triumph, and you know, let's give it a moment and then you can be dismissed and you know go have fun in the Lord. Amen.